Hello, and welcome to the Scuttlebutt Podcast, the place for current former service members to learn from the world's most interesting and successful veterans. One of the things that I tell every guest that comes on is that this is not a reminiscing podcast. Any stories of past military times are told to give context and help lead us to interesting insights about thinking deeper, earning more money, and making better decisions. Today, I'm speaking with James Laporta. James is former Marine Corps infantry turned investigative reporter, having gone on to be a contributor and work at many prestigious news organizations such as the Daily Beast, Newsweek, and the Associated Press. James talks about why journalism is such a difficult life, especially in the early days, how he approaches story selection, and gives some advice on the most important skill in journalism, and maybe even life, how to listen better. We also talk about his extensive backlog of information collected from the Freedom of Information Act requests, why command climate surveys in the military might be bullshit, and what's next for him after an unexpected departure from the AP. Please enjoy this conversation with James Laporta. And I was, I'm just curious, like how it may differ from uh, like actual news to podcasting. Oh, in terms of, in terms of interviews. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's not that different than how you're going about it. I, I try to have more conversations with people than trying to get away as much as I can from the Q and a aspect of things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the mistake that I made early in my career is I found myself talking too much to enter, you know, I would find myself talking more than I should have been listening in interviews. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so I didn't go to journalism school. So my journalism school basically came from YouTube. You know, I would watch old like 60 minute um, episodes. So I learned how to interview from people like Mike Wallace um, on, on 60 minutes who you know, he said that if you can get into a conversation with someone, they almost forget that the cameras are there, you know, mm -hmm. or, uh, and he was saying that the questions, you know, even if they're hard questions that you're asking someone, um, you know, a lot of the time that, you know, the person that you're asking questions of, they'll respect it because it's not just questions that are sort of invented out of whole cloth. The questions are informed by research. You know what I'm saying? So it's not just a, I'm thinking of a question off the top of my head. It's I've done my research on you and I've done a deep dive on you. And that's where the questions are coming from. And so the questions are more informed. But in terms of listening, that was the one thing that I had an issue with early in my career, which was I just was talking too much and I needed to stop and listen. And it was Bob Woodward who, you know, Woodward is famous for breaking the Watergate story at the Washington Post. He said, allow silence to draw out the truth, which I think is the quote, which basically means ask a question of someone and then, and I'll do this in interviews, ask a question. And then when, when the person is finished giving their answer, don't say anything, just remain silent. And it will become so awkward that the other person might actually give you more than what you had actually intended because people tend to be, not comfortable within silence. So that was the sort of the tip that I got from Woodward, which was use silence to draw out more, more of the truth, uh, more of what the question that you're wanting to ask. I don't know if that answers your question, but that was the first thing that came to mind. I'm kind of thinking about just like stopping here and just letting you keep going. Like, yeah, that's right. I'm going to use that right <laughs> <Yeah>. now. <laughs> uh, no, that is really good. I, I'm really excited to talk about journalism and like investigative reporting with you um, because you're a great name in the space and I'm sure that we could learn a lot from you. I want to start out with a little bit more of a personal question though. Okay. What do you think is the thing that you're the most proud of, but you don't get to tell anybody about? Oh, <laughs> I mean, this is really in the weeds and nobody cares. Uh, and it's very like, it's not cool at all. <laughs> yeah. um, you might be surprised about what I think is cool. So I, I mean, I mean, it's very in the weeds in terms of military reporting. 
you know, and you have to do a lot of work to bring it up to the level of where a national audience will understand it. So um, probably for like five or six years, uh, I have, uh, okay, so there's something called the Freedom of Information Act, right? Uh, this is not only something that journalists use, but your everyday citizen can use. It's basically uh, the Freedom of Information Act is a request that you can send a government agency to get information out of a government, right? Um, for instance, uh, the comedian John Mulaney, right? Uh, he once said on Late Night with Seth Meyers that he was investigated by the Secret Service. I submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to get his Secret Service file, which I thought was funny that they opened up a Secret Service file on a comedian. Um, so that's what a Freedom of Information Act request is. Uh, I file those all the time, uh, particularly for uh, these documents that are called command climate surveys. So a command climate survey is every military unit in any branch of service has to do a command climate survey. They have to be done annually or they have to be done like at any time there's a change of commander. And the command climate surveys run the gamut of what they talk about. They're basically HR, uh, human resource products. They talk about you know, how much do you trust your leadership within a unit? They talk about um, organizational processes and whether or not those processes are good or not. They talk about sexual harassment, sexual assault, um, racial issues. They, they kind of kind of run the gamut. And it's basically a snapshot. Uh, what they're for is so a commander can get a snapshot of their unit at a given time. Uh, command climate surveys are destroyed after three years. And probably for the past six years, I've been filing as many FOIAs as I can to different military branches to try to collect as many of these things as I can. So I think outside the military, I probably have like the largest database of command climate surveys in an Excel spreadsheet. And it's completely nerdy. It's really in the weeds. I, 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 I get these things all the time. Most of them I've never even reported on. I just find them to be fascinating, uh, especially ones where they forget to <laughs> redact the comment section. And then some of the comments from service members about their unit are just, they're hilarious, three. Uh, and they're incredibly vulgar, which is also funny. And, you know, uh, they, they have no, they don't shy away from telling you who exactly is the asshole in the unit, you know? Uh, I don't know if you can cuss on this, but but that's what they do. I think that that's extremely cool. Uh, just having something that a lot of other people don't have and your familiarity with the, the FOIA requests has obviously kind of allowed you to build this database. That's, that's super interesting, actually. Uh, if you collect enough of them, you can get good results out of them. For instance, last year, we did an investigation about racial issues in the military. Uh, I had I, I think I have every command climate survey for every single naval aircraft carrier uh, over a four-year period, I think. And basically, we're, from those documents uh, and through doing data journalism, we were able to determine that like it was something like one in four or one in five sailors assigned to a naval aircraft carrier will experience some sort of racial discrimination. And we would only have learned that by having these documents and looking at the data within them, you mm -hmm. know, uh, before they're destroyed again, because they're, they're only around for three years or they're supposed to be only around for three years. So, um, but again, that's a lot of work to bring, you know, to bring the data from, you know, this in the weeds kind of place to sort of a national audience that takes a lot of work. You know, one of the issues was from one year to the next, they would change the standardized questions or they would change the formats and that made it hard for like scraping, you know, right. for scraping the data and then, you know, kind of, uh, and, but we, we noticed that like by changing the questions, they, they got different results. Like they were getting bad results on their command climate surveys. And so they just changed the question. Right. And then, well, then the bad results went away. Kind of masks not, the problem. It masks the problem. That's exactly what, it, what happened. Or, you know, the other issue there was command climate surveys, um, 
they're supposed to be anonymous, right? Well, the issue there is uh, take, um, so I have all the command climate surveys from every single Navy SEAL team, right? So you'll have a situation where it's like 149 guys and one woman, you know? And so if she complains at all within a command climate survey, everybody in the unit's going to know it was her because there's only one woman at the entire command. Mm-hmm. So you really kind of don't have an- anonymity in that situation. And when I asked the Navy, like, how do you deal with this? They didn't have an answer. Talking about command climate and like gauging people's interest in and like how they feel about the military. How did you, or how do you now feel about your time in the Marine Corps overall? <laughs> if you had to rate it on a scale of one to five stars, where, uh, yeah. Where... Um, <laughs> what, what would be my Yelp review? Right. Um, uh, so, so I, I'm, I'm, uh, I've never been bitter towards the Marine Corps. I, I'm, uh, I would, I'm extremely proud of my service in the Marine Corps. Um, uh, you know, I've always kind of said, I, I love the people. Uh, I sometimes hate the institution, you know, like, um, which I'm sure is the case for almost a lot of service members, you know? Um, no, I, I really enjoyed my time in the Marine Corps. In fact, journalism was, um, I've always described journalism as, as a happy accident because uh, I had never planned to be a journalism. I didn't grow up wanting to, you know, be in newspapers or anything like that. I, I um, you know, really since high school and learning about what a Marine was, that's kind of what I wanted to do. So my plan was to stay in the Marine Corps for 20 years and it just didn't work out that way. Um, and journalism I fell into because I just didn't know what else to do. <laughs> But I actually really enjoyed my time in the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps is one of those places where it's like uh, the characters are so rich. You know, you, you, you meet people from all different walks of life and, and they are, there's a, smor- a smorgasbord of just different personalities that you just don't get to interact with in everyday life. But I think it's just like any other job. There, there's aspects that are really great about it and there's aspects that are, uh, you know, you'd rather not remember some of the experiences just with people, like people kind of specific experiences I've had uh, over my time in the Navy, it's like you couldn't even make it up. Like the people do some of the most and say some of the most ludicrous things. And I don't know if that's a byproduct of the, the melting pot that it just brings together peoples from all walks of life. When I was in Afghanistan, there was this guy who, um, he carried like a, like a, he found it like a hedgehog on patrol and he just carried it everywhere with him. Like, it was just really odd. Like it's, you know, it was one of those, like, what are you doing? It was like, Oh, it's fine. You know? And then like, I remember we got into a firefight once and he took it out and the thing was like shaking, you know, cause it, it was so probably scared out of its mind, just like the rest of us were, you know, but uh, he found it fascinating. Like he always carried this hedgehog thing around. So you know, it's just things like that, like just weird things, you know. You did a bunch of different things in the Marine Corps. I had written down that you're a marksmanship instructor. You had a few tours to Afghanistan, if I had that right. Uh, you're also a black belt. If, I don't know if I've got that right. I'm a black belt what on to, paper. On paper. <laughs> Maybe not in yeah. real life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you ask me what the the black belt moves were, you know, look. Okay, well, I'll let, let me address the black belt first because it's the easiest. Um, so I'm a black belt first degree in the Marine Corps martial arts program. Uh, I don't care at all about martial arts. Um, my idea was I'm going to get the black belt as quickly as possible so I can stop doing martial arts. And that idea backfired. Because they were like, oh, you're a black belt. You, you could get out there and teach other Marines. So my whole idea of like, well, if I get the black belt, then I don't have to do it anymore. It backfired. I, I ended up having to do it more. Oh, um, yeah. So, but yeah, the only reason I'm a black belt is I tried to get that thing as quickly as possible. Um, just so I could stop. But um, yeah, I had a lot of jobs. Um, uh 
I'm, I'm an infantryman by trade. So I went in as a, as a, as a, a 0311, which is a rifleman. When I re-enlisted, you know, they were asking me if I wanted to go to Quantico, Virginia, where officers get trained, or if I wanted to go to Paris Island in South Carolina to, to train recruits. And I picked Paris Island. So at first I became a, an, I think it's an 0933, with a, which is a combat marksmanship coach. And then I did the school up above that, which is a combat marksmanship instructor. And so I became a combat marksmanship instructor at, at, at Paris Island teaching recruits how to shoot. And then I would also requalify Marines on both rifle and, and pistol. And then uh, I was later an infantry squad leader. And then um, uh, I was also an intelligence cell chief. So like the last year I was in the Marine Corps, I was doing intelligence. Across all of those experiences, is there one or two that were the most meaningful to you or something that sticks out about like when you think of the Marine Corps, this is what you think of? I, I really enjoyed being a combat marksmanship instructor. The one thing I've always been kind of attracted to is, in terms of the Marine Corps is, is the Marine Corps' history or, or just military history in general. It, it, what, what always kind of amazed me is around Paris Island, there's these black and white photographs of Marines, you know, during World War II or Marines during the Korean War. And they're training on the rifle the exact same way we're training on the rifle, you know, in the, in the 2000s. And I always found that, that, that nothing had changed from World War II to the present. Like all the, all the shooting positions were the same, you know, the, the fundamentals or marksmanship were, were the same, you know, and I just like that, that there is that continuity, you know, that nothing, nothing much would change except for the uniforms and, and, and the weapons, but the, the fundamentals were all basically the same. So that felt really like traditional, you know? Um, so, so I really enjoyed it. And then I also found that I really enjoyed teaching, just teaching in general. I mean, it could have been a rifle, but it could have been anything, you know? I, I really just enjoyed, um, uh, especially teaching brand new entry level recruits, you know, cause I was kind of one of the first Marines that they ever interacted with. And my job wasn't to be a drill instructor. My job wasn't to yell at them, but it was to, you know, uh, teach them really about self-defense, right? I mean, the, what I was teaching them, they might carry on into combat and they might be, they might find themselves in a situation where they have to defend themselves. So um, it was kind of really an important job that I was teaching. Uh, so I really enjoyed that. When I went from being an infantry squad leader to working in intelligence, uh, I really thought uh, I, <laughs> I wasn't looking forward to it. And it actually, I, I enjoyed working in intelligence a lot more than I thought I would, than I thought I would. And uh, which kind of leads into journalism. Uh, my experience is that working in, in the intelligence community is not that different than working in journalism. To me, the audience is the only thing that's different. Working in intelligence, your audience is the commanders that you serve. And you're trying to best inform your commanders based on the information that you're getting. In journalism, the audience is the American people. And in, in a similar fashion, you're trying to keep them informed. So I saw a lot of overlap between my intelligence job and, and journalism. I'm curious, I, we can kind of take that transition and dive into your kind of foundational career there or the foundation of your career there. I'm curious what you learned about people from the Marine Corps, because you, a lot of your stories that you've gone on to cover are very like personal. They're very, they're about individuals and their, you know, their faces behind those things. And I'm curious if there was any experience or time that really gave you some insight into how people operate or what's important to human beings uh, based on your time in. Maybe I can, I can best answer that through the reason of like, I guess, why I went into journalism. So it's 2014. Um, I'm trying to reenlist into the Marine Corps. Uh, the problem is, is President uh, Obama is trying to end the Afghan war at the time. And anytime you try to end a war, you become over budgeted in terms of the personnel that you have. So in a lot of ways, I got laid off. They were like, you know, you didn't do anything wrong, but thank you for your service, but it's time for you to get out. 
And so I was getting out and I had these memories, uh, my own experiences from war that a, lo a lot of them were bad because uh, war is not fun. And, but I definitely was not in a position to want to deal with them. I was uh, psychologically not in a position to deal with my own war trauma. And so the idea I had was maybe I could write about the war experiences of other people. And perhaps through that, it will be therapeutic in some way for me. Uh, spoiler alert, it wasn't. <laughs> I, uh, I tended to like, because I started, when I first started in journalism, I, I looked at like what was not being covered a lot, or to me, in my opinion, wasn't being covered well. And, and so I started, I tackled veteran suicide, like right out of the gate. Like one of the hardest things to just cover in general. That ended up not being good for me because uh, I ended up taking on a lot of that. I had my own war trauma that I was dealing with, but then I was taking on the trauma of the people that I was covering. Uh, it, it was just, it was one of those things of like, I saw suicide impacting my community, impacting my friends. Like to date, I'm sitting at nine different people that I know that have that have killed themselves. And so uh, that I think was a direct result of 20 years of war. What were your takeaways from that initial coverage of studying suicide, but in kind of like a different lens? I mean, to me, it was, um, you know, it's one of those things of like, it, you know, war is, especially if you look at like Hollywood and TV shows, war is kind of sold the is sold as this idea of like, almost like a football game, right? Like there's a winner and there's a loser, you know, it's very black and white. It's very, you know, the side won, the side lost. And, and the thing I discovered from my own experiences of war and then covering veteran suicide is it's nothing like that, that wars don't end just because you're not in a war anymore. You know, uh, wars don't end because there's a peace treaty or, you know, a withdrawal from Afghanistan, which happened last year, right? I, I, I sort of realized that wars continue on, except the battlefield is, in, is psychological. And the other thing I noticed was that, you know, the devastation that, veteran suicide was causing families there there is a permanent shattering but what was you know one of the narratives i noticed is like you know soldiers that die in war that follows a natural story arc right like you can psychologically you can track that right like uh, the story arc is you know soldier um trains for war they go to war they die in the war right that's a, a clear beginning middle and end with veteran suicide, it, it was harder. It was more convoluted than that. It was soldier go, trains for war, goes, goes to war, doesn't die in war, but survives, then comes home and they take their life by their own hand. And that was a lot more complex. And that wasn't a clear cut, you know what I'm saying? Uh, that was something that I found interesting between covering, you know, being in a war and covering war and covering veteran suicide is it wasn't this clean package, you know, of a story because it left people with way more questions of like, why would they do that? You know, especially when they had family members, like um, a buddy of mine, Sergeant Chris Gross, was a guy who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. He was a... Uh, uh, he was a special operator over at Marine Special Operations Command. And then he came to us and we deployed to Afghanistan together. And uh, me and him both got out of the service at the same time. And a couple of years later, he ends up um, killing himself. And it was two weeks before his second child was born. It, and that is not a clear package because it's like, you know, the old way of thinking was, well, he survived war. He survived the hardest part. And in covering veteran suicide, it, what I learned was the hardest part is what comes after war. You know, like in a lot of ways, war is very simple. All you have to do is 
do go from point A to point B and not die, right? But what came after war seemed to be the hardest for people. And that was something I didn't know at the time until I started covering it. From your research and study, have you gained any like insight or clarity as to why or like what we need as a population to address that? Because I think you're absolutely right. It's it's a very difficult subject. Not a lot of people it's it's talked about, but to be frank, like doing 22 push-ups a day or whatever, you know, people want to talk about, like those are not things that are fixing it. It's not an awareness issue, in my opinion. It's there needs to be something larger, but I, I'm not sure what that was and, and what that is. And I'm curious if you had any thoughts or insights into that. Uh, I mean, at the macro level, I, I, I don't know the answer. I wish I did. At the micro level, I could say community, keeping people away from alienation. Uh, there, another guy I know who uh, killed himself, I think it was just last year. It, it shocked us all. His name was Rory Hamill. Uh, he was a guy who was a Purple Heart recipient. You know, um, he would go out on tours and talk to veterans about, you know, staying in a community and not going down that path. And, and, but COVID hit and he became very isolated and alienated during, you know, when we were all kind of locked up during the pandemic and it took a toll on him. And uh, unfortunately he killed himself, you know? Uh, so at the micro level, I, I found that community and not a lot, and it's a constant thing of like, just continuing to check up, check in on people. And that was kind of the thing that I kicked myself over Sergeant Gross, right? Because when I got out of the Marine Corps, you know, me and him were friends in the Marine Corps, but when, when we both got out at the same time, he went his way and I went mine. And I never checked in. And I I had incredible, I guess you would call it survivor's guilt when he killed himself because, you know, I, I would scroll through my phone, I saw his name in there. I just never bothered to call. And I, you know, I thought to myself, well, what have I had? That's something I have to live with. Um, Sebastian Younger, who is a, uh, a very accomplished uh, war correspondent, has written several books about war, one of them being called Tribe. And he talks about why it's hard for veterans to come home from war nowadays and what leads them down that road. And he argues that, you know, having a community of like-minded, you know, uh, for veterans to come home to would save a lot of lives. And I, and I tend to agree with that, you know, um, so at the, at the mic, at the macro level, I'm not sure what the, the issue, um, how to solve suicide or if you can solve it, but at, at the micro level, it, it seems to be that community tends to be the best way to address it. You know, and not let people get isolated or alienate themselves from others. It's really extremely difficult to prepare for your like exit from service because you don't you don't anticipate like how much that will impact you. You go from spending every single day with the same people, and you just have this bond that you feel like could not be broken under any circumstance. And one day you're like handed your DD-214 and you never see those people again. And it's almost like it just, it never happened. Like it, mm -hmm. the, there's like no remnants really there other than just like your memories and, you know, what you, what you bring along the road with you. But that, that tie is cut very quickly. And I think that you highlight a great point there. It puts people in a bad position. Yeah, I mean, the initial thought is, uh, this is awesome. I don't have to get up on, I don't have to get up at like, you know, five o'clock in the morning to be at formation at 530. And I don't have to go run three miles down the road. But that, that feeling is, is a temporary one. And then after that, you realize, um, yeah, you're, you're kind of left to your own devices, and there is no safety net anymore. You know, and you have to really figure things out on your own. Whereas, I mean, everything in the military is figured out for you. Like even down to how you get ahead in life, right? Like it, there's literally like roadmaps of like to get from this rank to this rank, you need to do this, this, and this, and this, right? Everything is laid out for you. 
down to your haircuts, down to your uniforms, that you don't have to really think too much. Um, just about everyday things. And, and then all of a sudden you're dropped off into the world and they're like, you know, good luck. You know, um, uh, yeah, the separation process from military is not uh, great. And, and I would argue it's still not great today. Uh, I, I mean, I was given, uh, me personally, I think, I think I was given like a month uh, so basically, my uh, I, you know my 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 reenlistment package was denied, and then they're like, okay, you have a month to completely check out and become a civilian, which is crazy because this is all I've known for eight years, and now all of a sudden I have a month to completely check out, turn in all my gear, and figure out what the hell I'm going to do in life. You know, so uh, when. The stated goal at the time was, uh, particularly the Marine Corps, they were like, you know, we want to give Marines who are getting out of the Marine Corps about a year. Well, that didn't happen for me. <laughs> I had about a month. And then all of a sudden I was on my own, left to figure out, you know, even how to do like basic stuff, like how to apply for college. That is a difficult, uh, very, very swift transition. And I think that that echoes a lot of the, a lot of people that I talk to story. What's unfortunate is that I even talk to some people that are preparing for transition like a year out and it, that almost still isn't even enough. Like there, there is some amount of, or like there's some amount that you won't be able to prepare for and time may not be all the answer. I don't know if it's resources. I, I think about this a lot and talk to a lot of people with, like I said, in similar circumstances, not really quite sure what the answer is. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at our training cycles, right, like, like a, a typical infantry battalion trains 12 months to go on a six month deployment, you know, uh, a typical Navy SEAL unit trains for 18 months to go on a six month deployment. You know, we don't dedicate that amount of time for the transition back into civilian life. We just don't. What was your very first reporting job outside the service and how did you end up landing that? Where did that kind of, where did those dots connect on? Yeah, you know, I'm going to give journalism a try. So I first started dabbling in journalism while I was still in Afghanistan. Uh, I was in, while I was still in a tent in Afghanistan, I had found a website called Policy Mike, which turned into Mike.com. Uh, I wrote a couple of articles for them. I didn't make any money. Uh, and then uh, uh, I linked up with this guy named Nolan Peterson. Uh, Nolan Peterson today is a very accomplished journalist. He is a he was an uh, an Air Force Special Operations pilot, served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and he's been covering the uh, Russia Ukraine war since 2014. So he's in a great position nowadays because he, he was covering the Russia-Ukraine conflict back when it wasn't popular and the world was not paying attention. But he used to have a website called Blue Force Tracker, which was kind of like the idea behind it was kind of like a task and purpose. It, you know, it was like, you know, military veterans, you know, people from the diplomatic service, you know, former spies and stuff like that writing the news. That was the idea. And so I wrote for him for 10 months, no pay, you know, <laughs> and then uh, I became uh, a part-time reporter at the Jacksonville Daily News uh, outside of Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Uh, and I think it was like $10 an hour and I could only like work for like, I don't know, like five hours out of the day or six hours out of the day. It was, a, you know, it was a part-time gig. Um, but yeah, I mean, initially journalism was not making a lot of money, you know, um, and for the first year and a half that I was in journalism, I wasn't getting paid. You know, uh, I was, I was going to college at the time and I was also an Uber driver, which was hard because at the time I, I, I had a mortgage and I had a wife. I was married at the time, and so you know that was that was rough in terms of not making a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, and then I forget 
there's an editor at the Military Times who's now at the Washington Post who said, you need to stop working for free. <laughs> He's like, your, your, your writing and your reporting is good enough now where you need to start charging and stop working for free. And so I remember, you know, the first time I made $250 on an article, I thought I had, you know, I was like, look at how rich I am, <laughs> which is ridiculous, you know, because it's not a lot of money. But at the time, I thought it was a lot of money. So that was kind of the, you know, how I first got into journalism. But uh, I was a freelance journalist for probably four or five years until uh, 2018 um, when I was hired by Newsweek magazine. Um, to to kind of tell you how bad it got, I mean, I think one year I made a total of twelve thousand dollars. It's a freelancer. Yeah, it's pretty rough. You know, I've heard that they don't tell people to go into writing really of any sort for the money. No, yeah, you really gotta kind of love what you're doing. You know, um, which again, journalism it was one of those kind of like one. It was like. On one hand, it was like, I didn't know what else to do. Uh, and then the second one was like, I still wasn't ready to deal with my war experiences. You know, those were really the only two reasons I was doing it. But yeah, uh, so, you know, when Newsweek came, you know, it was it was kind of a godsend because it, you know, uh, they were like, hey, we'll start you at $50,000. And I was like, yeah, that's amazing. You know, as a sergeant with eight years in, you know, I don't even know if I was making $50,000. If you had to or had the opportunity to go back and talk to your younger journalism self, knowing what you know today, what do you think you would tell him? It's a really good question. I don't. I mean, I think I would try to tell him to not be so anxious. You know, there's a lot of anxiety, you know, um, with, you know, uh, financial issues, you know, and things like that, because, you, you know, my early days of journalism, I'm not making a lot of money. And, you know, I have a, a family to support, you know, I got bills, I got to pay, you know, and it, and for month to month, it was always just like, especially as a freelance journalist, um, from month to month, I was always worried, like, am I going to make enough money to cover my bills? And that came with just a, a tremendous amount of financial anxiety, you know? And, um, and, you know, through that anxiety, and it always worked out. But, you know, when you're in it at the time, you don't know if it's going to work out. And it, 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 I wish I was as cool and calm and collected in that experience as, as I was in, like, combat. So I found, like, when I, when I got shot at or when I was in, um, when I got shot at or if I was walking around IEDs, I became very calm. I, I was not anxious. I was not worried. I became very just really cool, calm, and collected in war. And I did not have that in from month to month working as a freelance journalist. I was constantly worried that the bottom was going to fall out and the, the other shoe was going to drop. You know, and I kind of wish I had that kind of same cool, calm, and collectedness from war as a civilian. And I wish if I could talk to my younger self, I wish I could just impart that that sense of like that everything was going to work out and everything was going to be okay. Cause at the, my younger self did not know that that kind of filtered over into when I got hired at Newsweek, uh, like for the first year or so at Newsweek, um, I constantly thought that I was going to be fired. Not because they were unhappy with my work or they were threatening to be fired. It was just my own anxiety. I had gotten into this idea that, if I don't work as hard as possible, if I don't outwork everybody around me, I'm going to lose my job. That had a negative impact on my personal life. I alienated myself from friends. I alienated myself from family. All out of this notion of that um, I could lose my job at any point. So I worked my ass off, <laughs> you know. And so I think that's what I would try to tell myself to impart myself, uh, to try to tell my younger self, it's going to work out. It's going to be okay. You don't have to be as anxious every day that, as you are. Now, would my younger self accept that? <laughs> that advice? I have no idea. Probably not. Well, and what's ironic, you said that you were kind of like waiting for the shoe to drop. 
and the the shoe dropping when you're being shot at and walking around IEDs is much different than missing your monthly mortgage payment. Uh, right. the, the the outcome is very very different, and so that's interesting that you felt that kind of anxiety about that. Um, contrasted with like a much more on the surface, like much more serious situation, just objectively speaking. Have you learned anything interesting about what it is like working for yourself as opposed to working slash reporting for a larger organization? Um, Well, the benefits are better. (laughs) <laughs> You're working for an organization. It's things you know, like health a, insurance and uh... health insurance. Yeah. Well, because when I was a freelancer, I didn't have health insurance. You know, I had, um, you know, I had, uh, I, I mean, I had healthcare in terms of like, you know, service connectability, you know, like, um, you know, if, uh, you know, because everybody's got like, you know, 10% disability for their hearing, you know, through the VA. So I have that, you know, and then, I had healthcare when I was in college, but, but, um, outside of college, I am for the most of the time I did not have healthcare. Uh, and you have a little bit of uh, credential backing, right? Like, uh, as a freelancer, you know, I didn't have to go, uh, you know, I'm James Aporta. I'm, I, I'm writing about a story and they're like, well, who, you know, who do you work for? It's like, well, I'm not quite sure. You know, it's like, I don't know. I might, I might publish this with the, the Washington Post. I might publish this with the Daily Beast, which most people outside of DC or New York have never even heard of. You know, uh, you know. So there was always that kind of tap dance of like, who do you work for? You know. Whereas, you know, I'm James Aporta. I'm an investigative reporter with the Associated Press that says everything you need to know. You know. So there's not much of explaining to do. Uh, the freelance life is is. It, it's good in some aspects, but it's it it it's bad in others. You know, the good part of freelancing is you get you get to pick your own assignments. You know, no, there's no editor telling you cover this, don't cover that. You know, uh, and you can spend as much time on a story as you want. Um, what you have to get good at is selling yourself, and yeah, you know, which in the beginning I was not good at, um, and marketing yourself. Uh, the other thing you have to get good at as a freelance journalist is the business side, right? Because you're 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 essentially an independent contractor, and so um, most journalists are not good at the business side of journalism. We're good at you know gathering facts and writing stories and interviewing people, things like that. The business side of journalism, most journalists tend to not be good at. How has everything that you just expressed there formed your opinion about? who your identity is as a reporter, maybe outside of an organization, because you're, you're in a unique position now, and we might get to that later, where you're looking for work and you kind of need to either like rely on past work or, and, or be able to say, Hey, this, I have this track record that's outside of, and not associated with an identity. And, and press is kind of, it's unique in that, you may fall under a publication or something, but it still will be public and your name is still on it. Not exactly the case with a lot of jobs. A lot of, most of the time when you work for a company, you're a faceless cog under a large umbrella. But what I see in in people like you and reporters in general, and I, I think some people kind of in internet culture do this really well is they have their own like personal brand and kind of identity built that is unique and people associate like, oh, it's when they hear investigative reporting in the military space, they think of James, not your company name. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're, you're right. Uh, the currency in journalism, especially for an individual journalist, is our past reporting. You know, uh, that is our currency. That's kind of what we sell ourselves on. You know, when I'm selling myself you know, uh, now it's like, you know, I'm the reporter who uh, reported before anybody that U.S. Special Forces had killed, um, you know, al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS. So no other reporter can claim that. I can. So that that's a selling point. Um, I was also a reporter that first reported um, 
that we had killed our uh, Zerkawi this past year. So those are that is currency. That's that's selling points. You know. Um, so yeah, it's really our track record. You know, uh, but journalism is also a weird place because it's also the only place. You know, um, if a journalist gets fired, everybody hears about it. That's the other. That's the other double-edged sword. Is just like everybody can kind of look up your work and look up your track record. Uh, usually, uh, when you mess up, they know that the, they know that track record too. So it's a very public-facing, you know. Which I don't disagree. I think it should be that way. You know, I, I I'm always been a big proponent of more transparency in journalism, especially in the age of of so much misinformation nowadays. Right? I think it's incumbent on journalists and publications to be more transparent in news articles about where information comes from that informs that news article. The, I, I mean, the more you can just lay it out for people, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, our, our currency is, is yeah, your track record. And, and then also if you have particular skills, right? So uh, one of my selling points is, is using the Freedom of Information Act, right? So even if I don't have sources, I can teach you how to use the Freedom of Information Act, which will better inform your reporting. And that was one of the jobs that I had at the Associated Press was I used to teach younger journalists at the AP, um, like interns. And then I would also teach other AP journalists how to better use the Freedom of Information Act so we can pull more information out of the government. So that's also a selling point is that that skill set, you know. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I have noticed at reading a lot of your work in preparation for this interview is you've covered a lot of contentious stories, like extremely contentious. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if that was intentional or if that's something that's driven by, hey, this is like what people will click on and this is like what kind of drives news is it's got to be kind of interesting and like inflammatory to some degree. Do you have any commentary or thoughts on like what drives your process with stories and then maybe how that that feeds into like your, what you bring to the table when it comes to like future prospects on jobs? Yeah. Uh, So I don't go looking for conflict. Uh, I don't, um, and I've told, you know, public affairs officers this before in my past, you know, I don't go looking for a quote unquote good news story or a bad news story. I'm just looking for a story, period. It, now, if that's a good story or interpreted as a good news story, great. If it's interpreted as a bad news story, great. I don't care. I'm interested in a story, informing the public about something they didn't know. Um, and, you know, even, you know, despite all the contentious things that I've covered, um, my favorite reporter has nothing to do with what I covered. <laughs> my favorite reporter that uh, in the world is a guy named Steve Hartman, who works at CBS News. He does one story a week, and it comes out on Friday, and it's called On the Road with Steve Hartman. And basically, it's a two to three minute segment about you know, uh, stranger gives kidney to random person who needed it. Those kind of stories. Or, you know, a seven-year-old boy donates $20 to soldier. You know, heartwarming stories that have nothing to do with what I cover at all. But the reason he's my favorite reporter is it's just a story. It's it's not, you know, um, it's just a... It, it, yeah, there's a twist to it and it's it's heartwarming and stuff like that, but it's um he's just a naturally good storyteller. You know? Uh for me, I've never gone at stories based on whether or not they're good or bad. It's always been like I get a tip or I learn something through FOIA or I learn something from reading some sort of report, and I and I deem that to be important for the American people to know. You know, that that's kind of how I, uh, I've always traditionally kind of gone at it. Not so much whether or not there's conflict in it or not. No doubt there's going to be a lot of things that you cover in the future. And like, obviously up until now, 
that bring criticism to you? I would love to hear about maybe a time that, or, or maybe if it has been, you have received criticism for something that you're just, it's like, hey, I'm just reporting the facts. Are, are you really held to the fire by readers, listeners, et cetera, over things that you see and, and deem to be factual information? And, and maybe how, how does that play out with how you think about your work? I mean, that comes with the job. Like criticism comes with the job, you know. Um, uh, you know, journalism, good journalism is supposed to, you know, ruffle feathers. You know, it's supposed to, you know, uh, to me, the best journalism is when you, uh, you, you know, if there's two sides of the story and I've pissed both people off, to me, that's a good story, <laughs> you know, like, uh, which I've had stories like that, you know, where, um, you know, I'm an equal opportunist, you know, I, I um, people are not going to like stories um, that just comes with the nature of the job, you know, uh, have I gotten criticized for things that are not my fault? Sure. Right. Usually it's like headlines. Uh, reporters don't write headlines. Usually that's an editor's job. And, uh, but it's our name on the byline. So usually reporters uh, get criticized for like, you know, um, I remember, uh, I can't remember the story. It, it was something like, um, I was writing about, I think it was like migrants coming up from the border and and the and migrants were being moved to a certain military base here in the country. I can't remember which base it was, but uh, at that base, it was one of these bases where we train um, servicemen, uh, uh, service members to become uh, intelligence specialists. Right, that was just where normal training happened, and the headline was something like "Migrants Moved to Spy Base" or something to that effect. And the term "spy base." implies that it's a base in the United States that's actively spying, which on American citizens, which is not true. You know what I'm saying? And so um, I remember getting criticized by that. Now, I didn't write that headline, but I understand the criticism, you know, because it wasn't a spy. It wasn't a spy base. It just, you know, it was just a base where people get trained on how to do intelligence, you know. But um, no, I mean, having tough skin is part of being in journalism. You're going to get criticized. That that's the you're going to get criticized by readers. You're going to get criticized by governments. You're going to get criticized by individuals that you write about. But those criticisms are, are also important too. So I wouldn't want those criticisms to go away either. You know, I would imagine it's an incredibly short feedback loop for your writing. And if you can manage the feedback in a way that you're not going to take it personal, but find a way to say, how could I have been better? Or because I would imagine that there's maybe not all, probably not even a majority, maybe 10% of comments or whatnot are maybe actually constructive and they're getting right. at something that's good or a way that you could improve as a writer or reporter. Um, a lot of them I'm sure are just thrashing needlessly, but. Yeah, I mean, you'll, you can tell uh, very quickly constructive criticism from like say death threats. So I get death threats like all the time. Like, um, uh, 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 you know, women actually, uh, women in journalism actually get it worse than me, but, but, and that's that's an unfortunate thing. Journalists journalists should not be receiving death threats. You know, I don't care who you are, uh, or or you know what publication you work for either. Most recently, you were at the Associated Press, and I want to just briefly talk about your time there and, and kind of what happened uh, for what you can share anyway. Sure. How would you sum up your time at the AP? Uh, I love being at the Associated Press. Um, the uh, atmosphere there is um, 
uh, especially, uh, so I was on the investigations team at the Associated Press. I worked for there. I worked there for almost three years. You know, everybody on, um, you know, the rank and file reporters, you know, people just like me, um, lovely people at the AP would want to work with them again in the future if I could. Um, we did some great work, uh, you know, last, last year, um, I spent about a year and a half looking into how many weapons and explosives go missing from military installations in the country. And it turns out uh, it's a lot. <laughs> and some of those weapons actually end up being used in the commissioning of a crime. Uh, for example, we tracked a, a nine millimeter Beretta from Fort Bragg all the way to Albany, New York. And that was used in a shootout between gang members, you know, things like that. Uh, and that one, uh, several awards this year that reporting uh, also did um, looked at racial issues in the military. I, I particularly looked at the Uniform Code of Military Justice and issues within the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Found that there's there's no hate crime um, in the military. There's no hate crime categories in the military. Um, that's problematic. Uh, that that won a national investigative award. Um, yeah, uh, and also while I was there, I got to, you know, the AP style book, right? Um, so the AP style book is basically the Bible for journalism. Uh, every single publication uses the AP style book in terms of like informing their journalism or how they should write journalism. Uh, it was kind of cool. I got to uh, be an author, a contributing author in this year's AP style book. So I was like, uh, I got to improve military terms within the AP style book, you know? So that was kind of cool. Uh, and then I taught FOIA at AP. So that was kind of what I did uh, for uh, the almost three years that, that I was there until recently. That's gotta be a good feeling knowing that you're like giving back and helping improve the processes of something. And there, you mentioned this at the very beginning, but that love for teaching, like being able to make the writing better, not just like your own writing, but you're improving the the writing and reporting of others as well. I, I, I've always historically thought that I was a better reporter than writer. And so I've, I've had to really concentrate on writing to become a better writer. Writing yeah. is, I, I envy people and I'm jealous of people who can just write and write beautifully. You know, I don't have that talent naturally. So I have to really I have to really, really focus on writing. I mean, reporting, I can always find a good story. I know exactly where to go to find good stories. I know how to interview people very well. You know, like that's the reporting side of me is, is always been very easy for me. But writing has always been the one where like, I'm not as strong as I'd like to be, you know? And so I've always kind of focused more on how to become a better writer, you know, versus a better reporter. Recently, you were let go from the AP. Would you mind sharing your perspective of what happened and, and exactly what the incident was? Uh, the incident, I would say there's enough information that's publicly out there for people to uh, look up and decide for themselves whether or not uh, I should have been fired or not from the AP. And people can come to their own conclusions. Um, but yeah, there's enough information that's out there already publicly, uh, that lays out exactly what happened. That information's out there, but generally speaking really quick, there were reports that, uh, Russian missiles had entered into Poland and killed, uh, two individuals in Poland. Um, this is a big deal because Poland is a member of NATO and, uh, there is this thing called the Article 5 Treaty, and which could have drawn the United States into a war with Russia. So that's kind of why it was a big deal. The initial reports turned out to be wrong. What actually happened was Russia had fired missiles. Ukraine defended itself by shooting those missiles out of the sky. And debris from that fell into Poland and unfortunately killed two people. Uh, the initial confusion seems to stem from that both Ukraine and Russia use the same type of missile. <laughs> so both Russia and U Ukraine missiles are, they're all Russian made in a sense, you know, 
that that's generally what happened. I appreciate you sharing that. You know that that's kind of a disrupting time in your life and kind of obviously unexpected. Um, and so I, I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. I want to kind of close out and talk about what we can learn about journalism from you. You've spent the last nine years, like you said, writing and reporting, which there are some skills in there that I think are extremely valuable. Asking good questions. You mentioned that you know how to interview really well. How do we be as maybe even, maybe even not people going into journalism, but just people in general asking better questions and like getting to the root cause of issues is an important skill that everybody should have. How do we do that better from your learnings as a reporter? I would say uh, one is to listen more. I mean, that that's kind of been the key takeaway in, in, in journalism for me is to listen more. Uh, you know, secondly is, you know, there's that, I think it's Walt Whitman, you know, um, be curious, not judgmental. And I, and I try to apply that, you know, I try not to, you know, when I'm interviewing somebody new or I'm going into a new story to dig into, I try to approach it from a, from a place of curiosity versus a place of judgment. Because if you're approaching from a place of judgment, you've already made up, you're, you're kind of predetermining conclusions. Right. And, you know, there's something, uh, especially, in, and this is something I learned in the intelligence community, which is, you know, you want to try to avoid confirmation bias. You know, don't get ahead of the facts, but also follow the facts wherever they may lead. You know, that, that's the other thing is, is uh, I keep checking in with myself on, on my own gaps in my reporting, right? So I try not to get ahead of the facts. I try to stay, you know, uh, I try to just kind of follow the, the the trail, but also continuously checking in with myself about what are my gaps? What do I not know? You know, am I starting to, you know, it, go down the path of say a confirmation bias or something like that? And, you know, one of the best defenses is to continuously just be curious, you know, so, I mean, those are the two things that I would say is, is, is one, to listen more and two, to be more curious and judgmental, you know. How do we, how do we prevent from going down that path quicker than we should? Because I have to imagine when you get a tip for a story or you find something interesting, think about what this would look like on the cover of this. How do you prevent from getting to that point? Is it just by not making any assumptions from the beginning or how do you temper that? Yeah, so assumption is not a source. And the first time I ever heard that was uh, actually from uh, reading about Watergate from, from Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. They're, I can't remember the story that they were reporting, but you know they had a couple of sources on it. And so this is actually one of the Watergate stories that turned out to be wrong. Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein were wrong about. Uh, but I remember them saying something to the effect of like, look, we had a couple of stories and then we had, you know, some logic and some assumption. Well, logic and, and assumption are not sources, you know? Uh, so, I mean, that would be my argument is not to assume, <laughs> you know, how do you know what you know? And that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about being, I, I'm again, I'm all for as much transparency in journalism, you know, as we can provide, you know, how do you know that, you know, how do you, where does this piece of information come from? You know, what, are, you know, one of the things um, that I typically do, you know, uh, especially on an investigation is, is it, which is not that different from when I was in the intelligence committee, is I red cell my articles. And what I mean by red cell is I look at it as I'm looking for holes. At each line in an article, I want to know where that information comes from. So I almost write uh, for an investigation of mine, I write it like a book report 
so I cite my sources. This line comes from this. This line comes from this. This line comes from this. And it's incredibly tedious, but it is incredibly just important in terms of fact checking before it goes out the door. I like that line of thinking. And I'm sure that that leads you to kind of giving yourself more accountability in the information that you're providing. And then when other people read it, you can say, any questions about it, you can refer to this. This is where I got this. You know, the other thing too is, you know, the world moves so, or the world moves very fast now, and, or, and at least it's, or at least that's the optics of it, right? Especially on like social media, where a lot of people get their news on social media, that things are happening so fast. And I think it would benefit everyone if we just slowed down more, took a pause, and really thought through, you know, the you know the phrase in the military is the second and third order of effects. You know, that's not a bad idea. We certainly don't need to be in as big of a hurry as we think we ought to be. And right. I know you're in the business of sometimes reporting breaking news, but uh, most other things in life can it can usually wait. And it's better to have a more informed opinion that's well thought through. And yeah. I agree. James, this has been a really fun conversation. I appreciate you coming on and sharing with me. How can me and anybody listening be useful to you? Is there a social media you want to put out there or can people reach out to you? You are looking for work. Uh, anybody that's looking to chat with you about that, uh, where do you want to send them? Uh, I mean, I'm pretty easy to, to find. Um, I'm on Twitter at Jim Laporta. Um, my DMs are open. <laughs> I try to apply. I try to reply to everyone. Um, uh, on Facebook, I'm at Real James Laporta. I think I'm verified on on Facebook. And then I have an Instagram. I post a picture every once in a while, you know. But usually, usually Twitter or Facebook are the two that I check most. I'll uh, I'll include links to those in the show notes. I uh, really appreciate you, James. Thank you so much. Thank you.